Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Okay, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to RSA House. My name is Julian Astrell. I'm the Director of Education here at the RSA. Um, Tonight marks the culmination of a 15-month project that the RSA and the RSA Academies family of seven schools in the West Midlands have undertaken um, in partnership with the Anna Freud Centre, represented by Polly here, um, who acted as our independent evaluators and very generously supported by the Pears Foundation. Um, and to them, very many thanks indeed. Without you, it would not have been possible. Um, and I can tell you the, as Ross I'll introduce in a moment, but one of the principals in our schools will tell you that this is a project that the schools that participated in really, really valued. And I think that the findings of, of that report, um, of that project, bear that out. Um, I'll just give you a two-minute overview of what we did. So we had, we here in the education team at, at the RSA had for some time been receiving reports from the RSA schools in the West Midlands that the issue of child and adolescent mental ill health was growing, that it was a key barrier to learning, it was becoming a, a big issue in schools, that the specialist services that exist in order to support young people who are experiencing mental health problems um, that the thresholds to access those services were going up and that the, the burden, if you like, on schools was therefore growing, that, that for many young people, the adults in their school were the only people they could turn to, the only people they could talk to. And so we decided to run a programme of trainings which took place across the last academic year, this, the 17-18 uh, academic year, um, and we decided to do it for all staff in the schools. And this is what, this is, has happened elsewhere, but we, we wanted to, to, to really go wide rather than just focus on a, a lead practitioner. So this was all senior leaders, all teachers, teaching assistants, but also non-teaching staff. Lunchtime supervisors, clerical staff, facility staff, and so forth. Um, on the simple insight that all of these adults have contact with kids every day and you never know which adult a kid is going to want to go and talk to. Um, and so we thought a basic level of, of mental health awareness training um, would be good. And what we hoped was to see measurable improvements in the adults' literacy and awareness, in their confidence in dealing with, with mental health problems, um, in supportive behaviors practical things that they can do to, to, to support young people. And then fourthly, in the, in the wider school environment, try and build, if you like, mentally healthy schools. Um, and Polly will go through in a moment and um, tell us about the findings, but um, spoiler alert, um, it seemed to work, which we're, which, which we're very pleased with. And that's given us something that we think others might be able to learn from and that we, in our own schools, um, can build on. So now, enough from me. I'm going to introduce 
our panel of speakers. And on, on my far right, we've got Dr. Mark Bush. Mark is the Director of Evidence and Policy at the charity Young Minds, which is one of the UK's leading charities working for children and young people's mental health. On my immediate right, we've got Ross Trafford, who is the principal of Hollyhead School in Handsworth in Birmingham, which is an, an RSA school, a secondary school, um, and one of the schools that, that took part in the trial. On my left, we've got Dr. Polly Casey, who is a research fellow in the Evidence-Based Practice Unit, which I think is co-owned by the Anna Freud National Center for Children and Families and UCL. And then finally, on my far left, I, we have Simon Blake, who um, I believe is five days into his new job as um, CEO of Mental Health First Aid England, um, and can talk later on about, about some of the wider initiatives. This was a, our project was a, was a small pilot, if you like, took place in seven schools. Um, and um, Simon can give us a, a sense of what else is going on in the country. But to start, I'm gonna to turn to, to Mark, who hopefully can set the, the scene nationally and let us know what, the, what the, the nature and the scale of the challenge is. Mark. So I think it's really important to start by saying- oh, sorry. Oh. Yes. I forgot my housekeeping. Okay. Can, can I? That's the most. Am important I back on thing. the mic? There is housekeeping, and I do have to do it. Um, just to say that we. This is being live streamed. Um, so welcome to those of you outside the room who are watching. Um, those of you who want to join in on Twitter should do so using the hashtag um, RSA Schools. And because this is being filmed, um, if you could turn your phones to silent, um, I'd be grateful. Back to Mark. Many, many apologies. No worries. It kind of uh, illustrates my first point, which is actually schools are a really important place for us to look at emerging mental health needs, mainly because 100% of us, so everyone in this room, everyone in every school in the country, will experience emotional distress during their life. And that might not be an men enduring mental health problem, but actually we need the literacy, the skills to be able to cope with those challenges throughout our childhood and then into our adult life. So in terms of the scale at the moment, uh, according to the current prevalence data, which is way out of date at the moment, um, about one in 10 children, young people uh, have a diagnosable mental health need. So it's about three in every classroom. But actually, very soon we've got new prevalence data coming out. It was, uh, all of us are anticipating that that prevalence will go up, so there'll be more children, young people who could be diagnosed with a mental health condition. And actually, the coalition government and the conservative government put a huge investment into both NHS and schools infrastructure. So £1.4 billion was added to the child mental health pot 1.7 if you include the new pilots that are happening within schools. And whilst that seems like a huge amount of money, actually children's mental health represents under 1% of the total NHS budget. So it's a very small investment we make in children's mental health, waiting mainly until adulthood to intervene at a higher cost. And then beyond that, the NHS's own ambitions means that just one in three, if they hit their targets, one in three children with a diagnosable mental health need will actually get NHS specialist support. That means two in three children, young people, if the target is met, 
will be reliant on their friends, their families, their teachers, nurses, school nurses, to provide that support, or they'll get no support alone uh, at all. So that's two in three without crucial NHS support, but, and that doesn't even capture people with pre and subclinical levels of need. So what I'm saying here is that the majority of mental health needs will be met outside of the NHS. And with prevalence data changing, and with workforce uh, shortages, and with a lack of community infrastructure, that means more and more there will be a focus on schools doing both promotive and preventative work, but also mental health interventions. You may have heard that the uh, government are rolling out or piloting a program uh, to support schools to try and find a way that they can have some form of infrastructure for mental health. That's both in terms of a designated lead and a specialist mental health support team who provide a second tier of support. But actually, that's only going to be in one in four schools by 2022-2023. So once again, it will be those frontline teaching staff, families themselves, peers, young people who will creatively have to find their way through emotional distress and emerging mental health need. And that's why, particularly at Young Minds, we've been campaigning for a greater investment on the NHS, for a proper infrastructure for schools and colleges and further and higher education, but also looking at this community black hole, the fact that actually schools frequently don't have community organisations to collaborate with, that architecture, that infrastructure that used to be there when people felt like they were in crisis or needed a place of safety to go or to acquire some of those social emotional skills they're not there within the community anymore to the same degree they used to be. And that has to be part of answering um, the challenge we face with children's mental health in schools. Mark, thank you very much. And you've heard about the national picture. Let's hear about what, what it looks like from, from Hollyhead School in, in Birmingham. Ross. Good evening, everyone. Um, I'll start by talking about some of the circumstances that affect uh, students um, locally because it has a huge bearing upon what we do at school. It's difficult to describe a, an increasing need because the need actually has probably always been there, but how you respond to that need has, has changed over recent years. And as a school, to keep pace with those changes has been a, a huge challenge for us. The community that we serve are, are highly deprived. Uh, how that affects the kind of intake of students that we have. There are 78 different languages uh, spoken. Uh, there's uh, nearly 67% free school meals. And you can imagine all the issues and the challenges that that, um, that, that, that presents us with. Uh, an additional challenge that you don't find in the data, though, is that there's, uh, there's been a resistance to talk about this, uh, any of these issues, uh, in the past. The community, we've struggled to engage in any sign of discussions around um, emotional well-being, emotional health. Uh, and that will be an ongoing challenge for us probably over the next uh, 12 to 18 months. Just keep opening up the dialogue, making sure that parents are more confident uh, coming in and talking to us because it's us that have to uh, be brave about this. It's us that has to be there and, and, and be communicative with the parents because there is no local resource um, whatsoever. I understand that Birmingham as a city is quite well, well resourced, quite, quite well funded. We were talking about this earlier, weren't we? But that doesn't always necessarily reach down to school level. 
So it is us, it is the teachers on the ground that parents are increasingly looking to, to come to for advice and support. So changing the way that, that, that teachers themselves define their jobs is actually a, a huge piece of work for us over the uh, years ahead. There are operational issues for us. Finding the point of delivery has been a huge challenge because trying to get the point of delivery high enough so that our experienced professionals are able to provide the right level of support is one way of thinking. But actually to diagnose some of these underlying issues, actually you need form tutors or class teachers, people that are going to encounter the children, spot the signs and symptoms um, on, a, on a daily basis. So uh, thinking on this as a consequence of this whole project has changed considerably and I think we're a much more um, emotionally literate and certainly more aware organisation because of it. Before we'd done this work, there was probably 12 months um, before that where we've had to do some work just creating a culture of openness and, and trust and of community. Uh, making sure that language around these issues is, is shared language that both staff and, and students understand. Whenever we try and do anything of this nature, we try and uh, make it equally applied to staff as it does to students, and we'll look at some of the data and some of the impacts of the work a little bit later on. But that was a surprising impact for me, how we had to deal with the staff perceptions, staff confidence in using the language, first of all, in order to be able to translate that correctly to the students. So that, that was an unanticipated but, but very rich piece of work uh, for us. But it, it, that idea of community, is really, really important, and we found unless that you establish that first, you cannot do the work that follows a little bit later on, so making sure that students do trust us, making sure that we are being open, uh, and making sure that we are modelling um, some of these difficult conversations and how to set up those conversations in a space that's safe uh, and where students can have confidence. We had to do all that work for a probably 12-month leading period uh, for this to work, but once we'd created those conditions, we now have the infrastructure in place, thanks to the training and the programme of, of speakers and, and resources that came in, to actually do something about these issues. Um, but it's been a very, very complicated piece of work for us uh, that's probably took us 12, 18 months to get right. The final set of issues has been around um, challenging thinking, actually, and challenging um, some stereotypical, quite old-fashioned views uh, around the reasons why certain student behaviours present themselves. Uh, there was a culture existed at our school with uh, if a student's underachieving or disengaged that, that perhaps they just don't like learning or perhaps they just, they just poorly behave for a whole host of other socio-economic reasons. But actually we've spent a long time getting to the root cause of, of behaviour, under, understanding it as unmet need and really spending some time to, to, to work with students, understand uh, in great detail the challenges that they face. And just getting into a dialogue with students about that has been fundamentally important for our school. It's transformed our whole school approach to raising attainment. It's transformed our whole school approach uh, to student support. Uh, just that real unwavering emphasis on relationships for learning, openness, transparency. Uh, and now we've done that, we can hook in things like the mental health awareness program, the mental health first aid, uh, and it means we've got fertile ground with the students and it's something that they, they will invest in and something they will listen to uh, and something that they will engage with. So it's been fundamentally important for the school. It's, it's changed their thinking, not just on mental health, but on a whole host of, of, of achievement and behaviour factors. Uh, and it's something that I'm hoping that we can continue to be part of over the next uh, two, three years and beyond. That's great. Thanks so much, Ross. Polly, straight over to you to tell us a bit more about what we found. Sure. Uh, so I thought I'd talk you through briefly how we sort of went about evaluating the, the training in the schools. Um, and this is just really a summary uh, behind me. And you can find the full logic model uh, in the, the report that you should all have on your seats. Um, so really there were two strands to the evaluation. The, the primary, the core strand, was looking at uh, staff responses to a survey before and after having done the training. Um, 
And um, we, we asked them lots and lots of questions. Uh, there was about sort of 40 to 50 questions in total. Um, and what we did with that was we distilled it down to four key domains. And they were mental health literacy, uh, which included, I'll give you a flavour of what that included. So these were questions like, I feel equipped to identify behaviour that may be linked to mental health issues. Um, I know how to help children with mental health issues. Um, and I know the procedure to follow in my school when a child presents with a mental health issue. Uh, we also had a second domain was confidence in talking about mental health. Um, and that was both in relation to talking to pupils, to young people about their mental health, but also talking to their parents about their children's mental health. Uh, the third domain was uh, staff supportive behaviours. Uh, so that included things like uh, talking to young people on a one-to-one -one basis about their mental health, uh, taking part in mental health awareness ra raising activities in the classroom, signposting children onto other sources of mental health. And the, the final domain was the school environment. So uh, that included both the school's approach to, uh, to helping children with their mental health, but also to supporting staff with their own mental health. Um, so the questions included things like uh, children and young people's mental health is afforded a high priority within the school and the same question related to their own mental health. So the design was really a very simple pre-post design at this stage um, and they completed the same survey about eight months apart in between times they had done this, uh, the mental health training. And what we found was uh, a positive change in all four of those domains statistically significant improvement. Um, of course, what, what, what we don't have is a kind of a counterfactual sample. So what we don't know is what would have happened anyway without that training. But nonetheless, uh, we can see some positive change in, in, uh, in staff's responses. What we did next was to introduce some moderators then. So would we see the same pattern of results uh, across different types of schools, so primary, secondary schools? and also across different, uh, different roles within the school, so teaching staff, pastoral staff, and non-teaching staff as well. And what we found across the board was the same pattern of results. So regardless of the type of school and regardless of the, the role taken within the school, we found the same kind of improvement um, according to the staff. Um, the second strand of the evaluation then was, was kind of more secondary. It was looking at the, the pupils' uh, self-reported mental health. And the reason I say secondary is because really we expected this to be an indirect effect of the training. Just over that short amount of time, we didn't really expect to see the effect of the training percolate down to the, the young people that soon. So uh, the young people in the RSA schools, they um, completed an online survey that we call the Wellbeing Measurement Framework. Uh, that we developed as part of a, a wider project. And they did that survey in spring in 2017 and again in 2018, uh, along with about 30,000 other pupils. And um, it measured things like their mental health, their well-being, so emotional difficulties, behavioral difficulties, how they cope with stress, uh, the presence of various risk and protective factors. Um, and in the analysis, comparing uh, their sort of before and after responses, if you like, um, we didn't see any change um, over the course of the programme. But as I say, that's, that's sort of what we expected. What would be ideal, I suppose, is to have a longer-term follow-up, but that was sort of beyond the scope of this. Um, yeah. So I think that's Great. Thank you very much, Polly. Simon. 
Okay, thank you. Um, I just wanted to pick up <clears throat> Ross's point, really, which is that schools, fundamentally, teachers have to have enough time to develop relationships with children, whether you're support staff, whether you're teaching staff, whether you're senior leadership, because if you don't have that relationship, you won't be able to spot when something is going on, when anything changes, and then to have the time to, to work that out. And I think that we forget that all of our... Um, all of our successes with children and young people are based on relationship, whether that's mental health, whether that's sexual health, whether that's substance misuse, and, and that is at the heart of everything we do, building relationships. Um, so at Mental Health First Aid, Aid England, our vision is to normalise attitudes and behaviours around mental health by developing skills we all need to look after our own and others' um, well-being, which I think is exactly what this project was about. Um, 20 years ago, I was involved in the National Healthy Schools Programme, which was built on the premise that children need to be healthy to learn, and then children who learn well go on to be healthy young people and healthy adults. And again, I think this sort of feeds into that growing um, knowledge and understanding around what we need to, to do to ensure that children can learn and that we are responding to their needs. Um, the Healthy Schools Programme had meaningful whole school approach as core to its work, which again is, is part of, of this, which is you know, ensuring that you've got a strong culture and ethos. We've all been into places that you walk in and go, wow, this is a great place to be. We've also walked into places where you go, mm, this just feels a little bit icky. And again, you know, that's at the heart of, of this work. That participation of children and young people is, is vital to that, so understanding their thoughts that there's a positive evidence-based curriculum, uh, which, is, you know, which isn't a particular curriculum. I don't think we have to worry about which one it is as long as there's an evidence base, which basically means everyone knows what they're doing, what success looks like, and, and what they're going to do next. Um, and that this has pastoral care and linked to community services um, and underpinned by brilliant leadership and management. Again, Ross talked about, you know, this is not about you know, a few people doing something. It's about whole system change, about whole culture change. And I think this report echoes that. So just to remind us that we are continually learning you know, about this all the time and continually building on that. And I think our challenge is about scale, about intensity and about the resources to really make that happen. The key thing which I thought was really interesting um, in the report was it sets out the experiences of students and the pressures which are perceived to be on students and students' own uh, sense of that, but also the pressures and opportunities that that creates for staff uh, in relation to addressing the needs of pupils. And, of course, staff well-being is vital to that too. <laughs> you know, and we, we hear so often you know, staff who are not feeling supported and, and as if they've got enough. So, yeah, fundamentally, again, that strong leadership and management, making sure that staff feel well, staff feel able to address the needs of others. So MHFA is currently funded to deliver um, Youth Mental Health Foundation uh, first aid to a, to a lead teacher in every school um, in uh, England. Um, but we recognise, um, as was shown here, the value and importance of as many teachers as possible being trained um, in the programme. And the programme encourages that lead person that we're commissioned to, uh, to train to take on that role of broadening out or seeking additional resources to be able to ensure that more people across the school are able to do it because this can't be left to one person, whether it's a specialist team, whether everybody has a particular level and then others have more clearly, you know, this is a whole school approach is critical. But I think, you know, realistically, we have to ensure that um, mental health first aid, mental health training is included as part of initial teacher training, that teachers need to be thinking about this right at the outset, not thinking about curriculum, thinking about curricula being developed, and them as a maths teacher and this as an add-on. This has to be core to what people understand in their uh, role as a teacher. Um, and then 
clearly we need to ensure that every teacher is trained in evidence-based mental health um, awareness in order to create a strong platform for that cultural change, um, both within schools but ultimately within wider communities where we're all able to talk and make sure that mental health is an everyday conversation. Thank you very much. Um, Ross, I'm going to come to you first because it, it feels to me that, that the key thing here is school culture. No, the number one thing you you could do the exact same you could implement the exact same project with all the same activities all the same content in two very different schools and it it would have different effects mm. um, context is key the environment is key the culture is key um, and it feels to me like this goes right to the heart of a quite a sort of live debate in education which is about behavior management and the seven schools that took part in this project, I noticed when I was conducting the, some of the, the focus groups with the staff, they define themselves in opposition to what you might call no excuses schooling. You know, that, that, that they define themselves in opposition to that. They talk about behavior being a form of communication, being interested in underlying causes rather than just presenting symptoms. Um, and as you were saying earlier, relationships for learning, how that's, that's right at the core of it. Do, do you think that's a fair summary of how your school, the other RSA schools and others like them view it? Yeah, very much so. I think that's been the, the major challenge really is, is creating the conditions for some of this work to really take effect because as you described, you know, if you try and make it work without that culture being right in the first place you, you, you meet in resistance from the, the, the very outset you know the cyclical nature of school improvement is you don't want to be the latest, the latest fad or you know if you grin and bear it long enough it will go away and be replaced by something else so if, to make fundamental change that's going to that's going to last we've actually had to get um, teachers to consider their very purpose and so we've got a, a saying that we use at school is that you're um, you're a teacher of children first and of subjects second and that's been a huge barrier to overcome because the language of schools over the last two, three years has been that of uh, accountability measures, Ofsted frameworks and, and changes and new examinations and all those kind of stuff. So to get back to the root of why teachers do what they do has been, um, has been a, a real challenge, but actually has really helped us move conversations on in terms of um, behaviour management, as it's, as it's described, or relationships or teaching and learning, whatever, whichever angle you want to you come from. It's, it's making sure that the start point is always about finding out why teachers teach in the first place, and that's because they care about children. Uh, and if you can establish that as your starting point, then, then within reason, you, you can do anything. But um, it's not easy to do that, where all the pressures that, that staff are under, but actually they found the, the training sessions, particularly the ones by uh, Victor Allen, very, very engaging, um, thought-provoking. It, it had required them to reach uh, quite deep within themselves as well, about them reflect upon their own experiences. But I think you have to do that to trigger that real interest in doing this piece of work and, and staff all too often can forget that you're dealing with students that are very mature in their social emotional development and reminding them of that fact constantly actually I think fundamentally makes them uh, better teachers. Thanks very much. I'm going to hand it straight over to you the audience um, to join the conversations if you you can make comments as well as ask questions but in both cases please keep them fairly succinct. Um, if you raise your hand I will Choose people will take you in batches if there are several hands in the air. And um, please do wait for the microphone to reach you before starting to talk. And if you could just let us know briefly who you are. So we'll start with the lady 
on the aisle there. Thank you very much. Uh, just first of all to say what a fantastic piece of work and just how worthwhile and what a great comprehensive approach in terms of uh, uh, looking at all children's needs and looking at how uh, staff can be involved. I want to pick up on a couple of things that have been said, uh, most notably by uh, Simon, but also yourself, Julian, when you talked about school culture at the end. But Simon, your point about the uh, staff well-being and actually just to jump back I'm following your example Julian of forgetting the housekeeping my name's Julia Manning and I'm from 2020 Health I'm also a researcher at UCL and uh, we've been looking at 2020 Health for uh, school whole school well-being for the past five six years I have a vested interest my husband's an assistant head in a comprehensive in an inner city comprehensive and my question is about that whole school approach because right from the start and I have to say we were prompted by the Institute of Education to think this way and that was about staff first. If the staff aren't being looked after, if they don't know about how to look after their well-being, their mental health, then how can you expect them to be able to look after the children? And I think one of the really interesting points you make in the conclusion is that the most valuable thing about the project was the opportunity it afforded staff to come together and reflect. So how are you going to take that forward? Gentleman, second from row from the back over there, yep. Hi, um, Lyndon Walcott-Burton, actor, director, um, and I work as a teaching assistant in special needs schools. Uh, my question is, what exactly uh, is classed as a mental health issue? Because there are lots of things which could be uh, classed under the umbrella or not, depending on your kind of opinion and such. So, yeah. Thank you very much, and we'll take one final one for this round in, in the second row, please. Uh, good evening, I'm Richard Davis, I'm an RSA fellow. It's some years since I was at school, but I think when I was, the relationships that I had with my school friends were a lot stronger than those that I had with the teaching staff. So I'm wondering, is there an angle here in terms of uh, students being able to help each other that we haven't talked about this evening that could be really powerful, as well as staff helping Great. students? Thank you. Thank you. Um, well, open it up to the panel. Don't feel you need to respond to all of them. Pick the topic you want to reply to. And... Simon. Um, on the issue around what is a mental health issue, I, I'm not going to answer your question directly, but I'm going to say that a school that is mentally healthy and emotionally healthy will mean that those children that have a diagnosable issue will be able to, much more likely to be able to get help and those who may um, uh, need a bit of extra emotional support at particular moments or particular times would also get it. So it's, it's not just about, I think for me, the reason for responding to it is that it's really important to think of emotionally healthy schools as places where all children can thrive, those without um, particular diagnosable mental health issues and those with. And that, somebody else may want to pick it up differently, but I think it's really important to think about the, the whole culture. Um, Absolutely, from friends. Yeah, I think there is no one panacea on this. We've got to make sure that staff are trained and supported, and we've got to make sure that we're looking at anti-bullying initiatives, that we're looking at peer support initiatives, that we're looking at things that happen in the curriculum, and we're looking at, at, at staff-based uh, uh, work. And, and that is you know, the, the crucial bit about all of this. We must not be looking for the one 
golden bullet. We mustn't be looking for the one single thing. We must be looking about at the, the realities of children's lives. You know, it, this isn't just because of social media. This isn't just because children don't play as much as they used to. Things are changing. There are lots of different contextual elements, but our responsibilities has to be to understand it from children's perspective and then to think about the different range of interventions that will be there. But it, I do absolutely agree that it starts with staff. If we can support staff, if staff can feel confident, if staff can feel trained, if staff know how to get help, if staff feel able to voice their needs, you're much more likely that they're going to have the emotional ability and capacity to be able to look beyond the behaviour issues that they might be seeing and seeing what's happening for children engaging with that. I'll pick up the point about um, thresholds, if, if I may, if that's the right term to, to describe it. But we have no set definition um, for what what defines a mental health issue because what we found during the course of this project and in the work we do in the last few years is that uh, every student ex experiences it differently so one particular form of anxiety to, to a year 11 student who's just about to, to do his exams can be experienced very differently to a, a year seven who's exp experiencing uh, stress related problems for, for, for other reasons and so trying to define a threshold and uh, we often do it for capacity reasons don't we to make sure that we can we can manage the levels of intervention appropriately but we've tried to make it much more personalized that and it goes back to what I described at the start you've got to really know and understand the students uh, and to do that you've got to develop um, relationships with them so we've, we've tried to step away from a, from, a, from a threshold model or having to define the level of support needed before we provide it it's very much case by case basis and depend on the need of that particular student talking about the how do we define mental health problems I think broadly we'd say um, you know when problems reach the level at which they start to disrupt day-to-day -day functioning so young people's ability to do just what they need to do day to day um, in the the report the way that we defined uh, a mental health problem was unfortunately you know we had to in terms of measurement was um, young people who uh, have a score on the strengths and difficulties questionnaire it was which is um, above a level at which we would expect them to seek professional help. So that's the way we defined it here. And that just made me think about the, the one in 10 figure. Sorry, we've been told not to look at each other, haven't we? <laughs> um, and in, in our kind of, our, our findings, so this, this survey that I've been talking about, our 30,000 young people, that figure at the moment is looking more like one in five. Um, and that's been sort of replicated um, in some other studies as well, so like the Millennium Cohort Study and things like that. So the age that we're talking about is really, um, this was in secondary schools, so year sevens and year nines, so years sort of uh, age 11 to 14. Um, yeah. Thank you. Just, just before you come in, just to explain the reason we've been told not to look at each other. That sounds quite a, quite a weird rule. It's just it's so that we speak into our microphones, nothing more than that. Mark. Despite the fact that, you know, eye contact is really important. Um, but I can make eye contact with everyone else instead. Um, so I think it's important um, not to conflate these two things, but also consider them in your way into interventions in school. So actually, the reason I started with 100% of all of us in here, teachers and students experiencing emotional distress, is actually the core literacy we're saying we want teachers to have, we also want students to have. Right? So we want everyone, whether it's an episode of emotional distress, something they're facing for the first time, like their parental separation or uh, their own relationships breaking down or a first instance of bullying, they can cope with those things. And then there are a much smaller group who have an enduring mental health problem that first manifests 50% of them by 14 years old. 
But actually, if they have some of the core skills of emotional literacy, if they're able to manage and mitigate a crisis, then actually they will live with a mental health condition, but actually they probably won't be facing multiple crises over their life because they will have learned some of those core skills to manage them. I think that's the first thing. The second thing for me is another way into it, which is a growing interest in the US, in Canada, in Australia, in the Nordic and Scandinavian countries, is actually whether we take a adversity and trauma-informed approach to this, which is not worrying too much about what the diagnosis is called, but understanding that if you're a young person who is in an adverse situation, that's going to disrupt your capacity to comprehend what you're being told, to make decisions that affect your life, uh, the cognitive processes you need to engage in uh, schoolwork, and the level of attention you need to sustain during a class. And actually, if we take that approach, teachers might be more attuned to the circumstances a child finds themselves in and how that interacts with their educational ability and also how dysregulating and stressful a school might be for them, even with the best will of the world of a teacher approaching them. If you've never known gentle contact with an adult, actually an adult approaching you is automatically threatening and dysregulating. So there are mental health informed ways of doing this that look beyond diagnostic criteria and actually are probably closer to what schools and nurses and social work have done for a long time. Lastly, I just wanted to say in terms of the peer-based approaches, um, the thing that makes me really uncomfortable in these situations is the idea that adults have the answers and children and young people don't. So I think we have to embrace the agency and creativity of young people. So our experience of going into schools is um, if we have a day to train teachers and uh, school leaders and even governors, about three quarters of the day is spent with adults saying how distressing their lives have been, how uh, shit they found school, how no one really supported them. And then we have about a quarter of the day to talk about how they support students. And that becomes really live for us, for instance, in a situation like cyberbullying, where children young people are the creators, the consumers, and the distributors of distressing imagery. So yes, adults might hold some of the keys to thinking about how to regulate in the context of those, how to take responsibility for those actions, but actually young people are instrumental in those kind of behaviors, in that kind of thinking. So they also have to be part of the solution. Thank you very much. Next round of questions. Oh, lots of hands suddenly. We'll start in the front row with the lady right here. Yep. Um, I'm Emily Graham. I'm from Mind. Um, I work in policy and campaigns and lead on education. Um, so this is a really wonderful event. Thank you so much. Um, just to pick up on the um, peer education point very briefly, we're also piloting a whole school approach to mental health. One of the elements is peer education. So we've heard that young people, um, all of our workers in secondary schools at the moment, want to hear from someone um, who has the facts, who has the experience, has the knowledge, and they also want to hear from other young people, and they want to kind of share coping um, strategies and skills with, um, with young people as well. So it's that kind of um, no, no magic bullet again. Um, my question was really um, around the diversity point. So we heard um, that um, in at least one of the schools, um, there was, was it nearly 80 languages spoken? So just kind of how did you approach that? Um, we know that 
um, people talk about mental health, they relate to it differently. Um, how did you make sure that um, that kind of intervention reached everybody who needed it? Thank you very much. If you go two rows back, gentleman in the red tie. Thank you. Um, I, was glad to, I was glad to hear you use the word creativity. Uh, so far, nobody's actually talked about the curriculum. Um, Coming from, I, I was both a head teacher and uh, a schools inspector, I'm also an RSA fellow. Um, and can I say that I think it's high time that the RSA fulfilled the A's part of its name, given the challenges that the arts are facing in education at the moment. Uh, my main area is music education, and we are at real crisis point in this country. Um, we used to have uh, a curriculum where you could value creativity and we seem to have moved to a curriculum which has become immensely arid. Uh, I look now at the experience of my grandchildren, whether the five-year-old or the 15-year-old, and I find particularly, for instance, just to take the subject of English, that the whole idea that you learn a lot of your life skills and you, your spiritual, moral, social, cultural development is fostered not least through really good literature and appreciating and enjoying really good literature. And yet I see a testing system which sees text as purely an opportunity for arid analysis. Uh, can you address some of the, that, that, that issue of the curriculum? Because it seems to me that otherwise we're talking about ambulances at the bottom of the cliff instead of putting fences at the top. Thank you very much. And curriculum and assessment and their impact on mental health are actually addressed in the report. No doubt the panel will come to that. We'll take gentlemen on the aisle, second row from the back. That's it. Hi, I'm Ken Batty. I'm a fellow. I'm a non-executive director in a mental health trust in East London, and I'm a school governor. So this has been really relevant. But as we, you know, you, I think most of us in the room are sold on the idea. But what are the resources that are needed both to start and to keep it going? Because if we're going to go out and explain to people, that's going to be one of the very first questions. Okay. Some answers. Who wants to go first? I'll take the, the curriculum bit yep. if, if that's helpful. Um, it's, it's a huge challenge, no doubt about it, because the, the educational direction, it could be argued, uh, recently has been towards a, a much more academic curriculum, if you can call it that. I, mean, I, I disagree with that term, but that's how it has been defined. And one of the richest things about being part of the RSA families of academies is this idea of uh, distinctiveness. So we're very, very proud of the fact that our curriculum is still uh, incredibly broad. Um, there are lots of um, opportunities for creativity. We've protected in crafts. We, we, in fact, we've, we've grown the arts and, and, and music education as, as two examples. Uh, and I think as, as part of this agenda, it's very, very important that we, that we continue to do that. Um, but actually, linked to what we were saying a little bit earlier on, that um, uh, creative teachers, creative classrooms are about having a level of comfort with, with, with risk. Uh, and that's the biggest challenge facing schools at the moment, is defining your school culture in such a way that risk is acceptable uh, and you can learn from failure and all, all the other things that come with it. Uh, and if we can change thinking in, in, in that regard, 
then you're able to make curriculum decisions that are going to have some impacts later on down the line. I mean, I guess uh, that curriculum is fundamental to this and not just the PSHE curriculum, the cross-curricular, which is your SMSC, which you're, which you're talking about. I guess I would just say that I've seen quite a lot of really interesting creative work going on, particularly in primary schools. And I, and I wouldn't underestimate that people are trying really hard, perhaps against the tide and against the policy direction, um, to really try and ensure that creativity is still within the curriculum. Um, I think secondary schools sometimes have to try harder and find it more difficult to, to, to do um, that. Can I pick up the point around resources? I think it is about resources, but if we sit waiting for resources, then we're going to be sat here a very long time. And so it has to be about mindset, and then it has to be about allocation of resources, and then it has to be about finding ways to do um, what we can. And there are schools that do it very, very well. Um, and I think there is a, a, a real job for us. Of course, we know, again, that um, CAMS is under-invested in, but the response from government is we are investing 1.4 billion. We know that it's clearly not enough. Um, yeah, we know that there is a, a lack of extracurricular support within schools because of resource, yeah, da, 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 da. But we, those are realities which are here to stay. And somehow we have to find ways to shift the way that we're thinking. And I think it links into the creativity point, which is that many people feel stifled around risks because they're frightened around Ofsted. But if you know what you're doing, if you know why you're doing it, and you know that you believe that you are going to get the results, good leaders will take that risk and run with it. And I think that has to be the key message, because if we only look through the lens of resources, then we, we're going to struggle. Can I just pick up on that? So I think that's probably the most important bridge, which is we can debate endlessly on whether there should be a uh, component of relationship or sex education that has mental health focus. We can say whether there should be a standalone lesson for psycho and mental health uh, education. Or what we can say is it should be weaved into the infrastructure of everything the school does. And what we've been saying is, and this might put the teachers off, but I will clarify in a sec so don't get scared. Um, actually, perhaps what we should be saying is that no school is outstanding unless it invests in the well-being of their students and their, and their staff as well. And in order to do that, we fundamentally need to go back to some of those boring debates about the framework um, and the governance of Ofsted, the, what they're looking for, easing up also of what's within the curriculum and testing, but also celebrating as best practice schools that do invest in mental health and well-being that say actually part of being a successful adult in finding your way in the world is having space and time to process what's happening to you, perhaps in your childhood, and also finding the skills and resources you need to walk forwards in the world. And for us, that's a really important building block that is beyond each individual school but needs to be a big priority. And we're on the, the mom, moment may come very soon that Ofsted will change its key lines of inquiry and the odd bit of its framework, but we need a fundamental shift to rebalance the education system so that there is a core embracing of this so that schools can celebrate this and account for it and also it can be a core part of the funding model that they have. Just a small point, just to pick up on the, uh, the point about assessment and, and examination and the impact on young people's mental health. I mean, of, of course, there's a relationship there. I think we'd all um, 
agree with that. Um, and a lot of that evidence at the moment comes from America, so I think we're trying to build that evidence base in the UK. Um, but the other thing I wanted to say was that, of course, that relationship is also bi-directional. So, yes, the exam pressure we know has an impact on young people's mental health, but it also works in the other way as well. So young people's mental health also, we know, um, is associated with poor exam performance or, or even uh, both, attendance, both attainment and attendance. So just to say that, that the relationship is perhaps, um, it's not, not as simple, so there's still work to be done there. But there's, it's, it's complicated, isn't it? Because when, when, when I was talking to the students in the participating schools about this, uh, the issue, of course, comes up that life can be stressful, mm. and exams in particular are stressful. Yeah. Doing anything like that, going out onto a stage to perform, is stressful. Um, and a healthy level of stress enhances performance. It's when it starts to debilitate. It's when it, it's when it crosses that line. And, um, and then that takes, took, took us into the, a, a sort of wider conversation, of course, which is about the degree to which the apparent increases in the incidence of mental ill health are partially explained also by the, by the fact that the issue has become destigmatized, um, more widely discussed, that people are more relaxed about it. That's not to say that the, that the problems aren't real and aren't growing. They almost certainly are. But there's a, also a certain element there about, about what is classified as a mental health problem and whether or not people's comfort in talking about it, it explains at least a proportion of, the, of, of that increase. Um, back to you for any more questions. There's a lady... Um, right there, that's it. Thank you. I'm a, I've been a teacher for a long time. I'm now a freelancer. I'm a fellow, I'm a school governor with a lead on safeguarding and... SEND. And I, as a freelancer, I wanted to pick up on something that you've hinted at, and I think the colleague from Mind was expecting an answer on and hasn't yet had one, which is one of the young people I was mentoring came from a very well-integrated Pakistani background and suffered from debilitating exam stress. And I'm, at one of the last times I met her, they managed to say that she was unmarriageable if she admitted to any mental health problem. How can you suggest that this be extended into the familial and cultural context, not just the linguistic, so that young people, when they can engage with each other, but how do you engage with the families and the complete cultural heritage of those families? Thank you. Back row in the middle. That's it. Um, hello, a similar question. Um, how did you engage with the parents in general, taking this forward? And then a plea not to do detract from what you're doing but we must remember that there are a number of young people who are not at school and then for a variety of needs uh, for, sorry a variety of reasons and their mental health is very very important thank you gentlemen at the very back yep that's it you, Me? yep, you. Hello, uh, Menzies, director. Oh, of it's Loic. Hello, Loic. <laughs> Couldn't see you in the light. It's all right. And so, Loic Menzies, director of Alchemco, wrote um, a report that Julian and Mark were involved in about schools and um, schools and mental health. Um, I noticed in your logic model, you talked about policies and practices that schools might adopt, and I wondered if you could uh, talk a little bit more about the kinds of policies and practices um, specifically that were in the in the work you did. Thanks very much. And. 
why don't we go to the lady just in front of, of the last question. That's it. Thank you. Yes, I'm, I'm um, a teacher in South East London. Um, you mentioned earlier some t statistics um, that are in the green paper issued by the government about the mental health approach that they're going to take for children and young people and the mental health teams and the four-week waiting list. What more do you think the government should be doing in order to make this effective? Thank you. We'll come back for some answers. Ross, do you want to pick up on the point about about serving a, a multicultural community, multi-faith community, um, and, and, and how that impacts on, on, on this issue? Uh, well, we, it's, a, it's a tale of two halves, really, because our initial response was the, the, was the wrong one, and you often learn from your, your mistakes with this, don't you? Is, that, is The first thing we did, we decided to write a letter to all parents um, explaining why we were having much more kind of training days or, or disaggregated days than we, we had done in the past because this can cause an issue and with, with knock-on effects to childcare and, and other things. So we, we thought it was the right thing to do uh, to explain why we were having these, these extra days. Uh, and so, of course, we tried to describe what was the purpose of the kind of work that we were doing, why it was important, how it linked to other whole school priorities. And I think it ended up being a, a three-page letter, which 95% of the students, I'm sure, uh, filed in the round filing cabinet uh, just before they left the, the, the classroom. Um, but having recognised um, our mistake, actually, we decided to change um, our approach to uh, getting parents in. Uh, so as a one-off, uh, which will continue into next year, actually, instead of having subject uh, parents' evenings, they would be known traditionally, we decided to, to close the school down uh, for the day and have every uh, parent come in with their children to talk less about academic achievement. Of course, that's uh, very, very important, but there's other spaces in the school calendar to do that. But this was to talk about the importance of communication between us and them. Uh, it was to reinforce the importance of the work that we were doing around character development and relationships for learning uh, and why that was important. And of course, as part of the main conversation then, you, sorry, as part of the same conversation, you can talk about how we are supporting students because we don't try and hide the fact that we invest a lot in student support. We have our own dedicated centre in school dealing with those issues because that's the need of our community and we don't shy away from that. Uh, we talk to parents about the kind of work that goes on in there, the kind of interventions that, that we offer, the kind of support that can be accessed uh, if it's needed. And it's very, very early days uh, with that, but just getting them into school and open up dialogue about what support can be offered, what that means for students at the receiving end of it, and actually demystifying the fact that if you are invited into school, it means you've got to pay for a trip or your son or daughter has done something untoward, um, is a starting point. And it's going to be an ongoing thing over the next couple of years about getting parents in regularly and just open up communication lines. But it's, um, it's not an easy one, that, and something we're going to have to continually invest in. Mark? Wow. Uh, good, good comments and questions. I'm trying, I'm, I'll, only, I'll only respond to two. Um, so I think it, there's a, a bridge between the two points. So it's exceptionally important we think about children who aren't in school at the moment, whether that's homeschooling, those who are uh, in educational classes within in, inpatient care or within hospital school settings. Um, and we've heard some really um, difficult cases of where young people have gone into an inpatient uh, setting. They've actually had a good standard of health care but they've not had a continuity of education, despite it being a requirement of both the legislation and the um, SEN code of practice. So we called on the government to make sure that that's strengthened and ensure there's a continuity of education as well as care. And particularly when people are encouraged to take 
exams as during their stay with a different exam board, which means that they don't get a complete qualification, which is kind of a waste of their time as well as everyone else's. Um, we're increasingly worried, as um, T uh, Timpson is in his independent review, about off-rolling and exclusions, exceptionally worried about that population of uh, children and young people with sen and disability, and the fact that the majority of people who work in that space, obviously not you, uh, forget that the Children and Families Act and uh, uh, other pieces of regulation uh, do extend to children and young people with mental health conditions. They are covered by those protections, even though usually schools and local authorities kind of dismiss their need. Um, in fact, Ofsted, it was, it was uh, lost last Christmas, put something out really quietly, which effectively said they were concerned when reviewing their own school inspection reports that many families were being um, pushed into decisions to off-roll or um, agree to the exclusion of their children, which they termed themselves illegal. It would constitute illegal exclusion. And that's really concerning given that if someone has particularly a dual diagnosis of a, a learning disability or autism and a mental health condition, that their right to education is being diminished in that way. Finally, in terms of uh, what more the government could be doing, well, I did say the current rollout will reach possibly around a quarter of schools uh, with this, uh, this, this very light infrastructural offer um, by 2022-2023. So the first thing they could do is look to expand that. I think the second thing is consider something a bit more comprehensive. So if you go to Australia, if you go to Canada, there are end-to-end -end whole school interventions that look from a curricular base, a governance of school improvement base, they're linked with uh, health-based interventions, and also they put as a core um, a learning and development offer to teaching and other staff and, and school leadership staff, um, uh, children's mental health. So I think there's a lot more that could be done in this space, but it's a first important step forward. So I think we should congratulate the fact that there is an investment going in here, 1.7 overall is a really important um, investment to go in, but actually with that uh, three in, uh, two in three children, young people not getting NHS support, those with pre and subclinical need not getting NHS support, and three quarters of students probably not getting any support through their school, it still leaves a significant burden on schools who have no infrastructure, parents, peers, or the young person themselves. Thank you. I, mean, I was just going to add on the um, partnership with parents and, and um, whether that's you know, parents from different faiths, different cultures, that we know that schools um, who have strong partnerships with parents on all sorts of issues tend to be able to deal with the trickier issues more easily. Um, but uh, you know, the, the, the sort of guiding principle has to be um, where there's a will, there's a way um, on it, and it's not always easy to, to do, but also things like stigma do exist within particular communities, and it's then how do you use the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child to uh, identify what needs to be done? How do you stay focused around the child and ensure that that support is, is around them um, in order to address you know, the particular issues that, 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 that there are in that moment with that individual child? Just one small thing. Yeah. So just kind of... Um, 
the same kind of thing was really borne out in the, the results of this survey then. So the same members of staff, even the pastoral leads and things like this, who were very confident in having those conversations with the young people, with the pupils, were far less confident in having those conversations with the parents for whatever reason. But I think there is, there's a lot of work to be done in building that language uh, around having the conversations with parents. So we, we, we're currently doing a lot of work in how do you communicate these things to young people. So we, we often think about it in terms of big feelings and little feelings and um, how do you tell the difference between just having a bad day and actually having a mental health problem. So while we're doing that work, I think there's a lot of work to be done with having um, those conversations with parents as well. Okay, we've got time for, for one last round of questions. There's a man right in the back corner just to make life difficult for the... That's it. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, my name's Johnny Whitehead. I'm from Girl Guiding UK and we've done quite a lot to support girls and young women's mental health through our programme and peer education and so on. What I'm interested in, I'm, I'm operations director and I'm really interested in what we can do with our 100,000 odd volunteers to enable them to work with I mean, given the one in 10 figures, that means there's about probably 40,000 rainbows, brownies and guides out there with diagnosed mental health problems. So what I'm really interested in is what, whether you found any resistance from the staff in the schools to doing the training or seeing it as part of their role to be able to have these conversations. And if so, was there, was there anything you found that overcame that resistance? Okay. Any other hands in the air? Gentleman in the front row. Member of the project team. I'm <laughs> pretending I don't recognise him. Tom. Yeah, apologies for uh, using RSA privileges. Um, I had a question, actually, that was related to, um, Polly, your point about the prevalence figures looking more like 1.5 as opposed to 1.10 that we saw. One in five. Sorry, one in five uh, young people. And I just was really staggered by that. And I just wanted to ask the panel, what do you think the appropriate response would be, given that IAPT, arguably, um, the Talking Therapies programme, was the response for the last, um, the last uh, latest uh, data in 2004? So is there an a, a equivalent response? Thank you. And um, lady over here in the middle, that's it. Hi, um, I'm a year six teacher in a primary school and also studying at UCL uh, part-time. Um, and my question was really around uh, community engagement as well. Um, I actually teach down in Hastings on the south coast and we have quite a challenging uh, catchment. Over 65% of the children in the school I teach are free school meals, people premium. And um, I think my question really is, Sometimes it's quite hard to engage with the community, but um, what had you thought or about your next steps, maybe working collaboratively with the other schools in your area? Um, I know, uh, speaking to my children in year six, lots of them have got older brothers and sisters in secondary schools that they will go on to, um, and vice versa, lots gets fed down from them into the primary children of issues and things around mental health, um, and maybe a collaborative approach across the training that you're doing um, with staff from more in the community. I don't know whether that um, might help with the kind of um, 
collaborative community effect as well if the parents can see that actually this isn't just what their children might be doing in their school but actually it's a broader community engagement thank you very much and um, lady in the front row and then we'll we'll move to some answers just down here Uh, hi, uh, I'm um, a, a senior leader in the, the school with Russ Traffers, and I, I just wanted to make a point, because I always like to, as he knows. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to make a point about just how difficult it is for us to, to deal with the mental health of some of our parents. Um, some of our parents don't recognise their own mental health issues um, and often see that the mental health of their children is a direct impact of their lack of ability to parent them effectively. And therefore, having conversations with parents about the fact that their children have needs can often bring about lots of difficult conversations. Um, I mean, some, some of the issues that our parents are facing are, you know, housing, they're in temporary accommodation. Financially, they're working three jobs and can't necessarily parent their children as much as they would like to. Uh, and I think not only, so it's not only about the way we engage with parents, but it's how we can support parents and guide parents. And in, in the end, we end up as a school not only advising children, but advising the parents on what they can do as well. Um, and, and, and quite often it's, it's, it's a real challenge, but something that's often parents are not always aware of themselves. Yeah, thanks very much. I'm going to abuse my um, position as chair and add one final question um, to anyone on the panel that wants to answer it. The, the issue that came up the most in all of the focus groups, we did 21 separate focus groups with different groups of staff and, and, and pupils in the participating schools. The issue that came up most often was social media and, and, and technology. And I remember taking part in, in with Loic and, and LKM Co. And when they were doing a project on this, took part in a round table where it was said that this almost felt like the very early days of tobacco and smoking when people didn't know what the consequences were. It feels like this is all so new to us, um, technology and social media and the impact of living in a virtual world for, for significant chunks of, the, of, of each week rather than in the real world, that we don't know what the consequences of that are on, on, on people's brains, on, on people's emotional well-being and so forth. Um, but it was the issue that came up most. I'd just be interested to, to, to ask the panel what we do know about that and how worried we should be about it. T take, take all of those questions, whichever ones interest you the most. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll start. I guess the collaboration with other schools, one of the things that we know at MHFA is where you get schools networked together, it works, it helps, it shares expertise, it shares learning, it shares support, and, and that is fundamental, I think, in all areas where schools are collaborating, it could only bring benefit. But where there used to be support systems to enable that to happen, of course, it's much more reliant on schools forming those links themselves often in many areas. So I think that is important. I guess the one in five, what's an appropriate response? The key thing has to be um, maxing out the workforce you know, at all different levels. We, we cannot only rely on specialists. Uh, you know, so if the response previously was if we get enough people doing the talking therapy, we'll have enough people going through. This has to be all of the workforce working with children and young people, um, knowing, understanding, having enough uh, confidence to be able to do the basics in order that those with that more specialist uh, sort of training support can, can, can respond to those with more needs. And then um, I don't have an answer around social media, except that 
you know, digital, IT, social media, whatever you say, is overwhelmingly a force for good. It, it brings with it all sorts of awful things. <laughs> um, but those awful things existed in different formats in different ways previously. So, um, I, you know, I guess, you know, it's interesting, Julian, that you use the world, um, the virtual world and the real world. When I sit with my 15-year-old uh, nephew, he has his friends at dinner. They just happen to be coming through a screen and it's a different conversation. And for him, that is the real world. And I think we have to, again, really understand it through that prism and, and, and the lens of young people, if we're going to understand its impact on mental health. But inevitably, it has an impact on brain development, the way we think, the way we understand. We just don't know how yet. Mark, do you want to...? Yeah, I'm going to try and weave all of them together. Uh, let's, let's give it a go. So, first thing, um, Girl Guiding UK. Fantastic programme. If you've not seen the badges around resilience and wellbeing, they're, they're really good practice. I say that also because Young Minds collaborated with them on it. Um, but they're a really good example, actually, of how community infrastructure enhances what schools do. And I'd answer one of the other questions by saying, actually, what is the next generation of interventions? It's probably recognising that we need to take an ecological approach. Schools don't exist in a, a vacuum. They're part of a system. They're part of a community. So actually, we need to bring the interventions that are being done within police forces, within public health, within schools, within girl guiding and other community organisations so that there is a solid infrastructure for people to be warm transferred across, but also so there's a range of different spaces that people can um, access. In terms of what that community engagement might look like, I'd just give a really practical one. I just wanted to go back to um, the gentleman who said that he was a music teacher and a head teacher. Actually, why not bring in a community intervention like we did in Tower Hamlets, which is all about embracing grime music, which is about saying grime music is essentially about a narrative around diversity. I've faced diversity, no one listened to me, I found my own way through it. Having come through it, I found the life skills I needed, I did some things I kind of regret, but now I kind of have a sense of where I want my life to be. That's a really positive image for lots of people to hear. Some of, some of it's difficult and gritty, but it opens up a really positive conversation. If you bring together those kind of community music uh, interventions with what schools are doing. And then, um, very finally, um, in terms of thinking about the role of social media, um, whilst it might feel really new to us, it's actually integral to most young people's uh, worlds. Most of them have grown up with technology and are digitally enabled. Even if they're digitally excluded, they hear about it and they're exposed to it in many different ways, either within school or their peer group. What I think it does is augment the problems that have already been there. It doesn't necessarily create new ones. So if you were bullied in the playground and it followed you back to your home, now it bullies you in the playground and in the classroom and on your way uh, home and on your phone and in your bedroom and when you check your phone at night. So there's different forms of interventions that we need to think about which are about emotional and digital uh, literacy, people taking responsibility for their actions and, and crucially starting to build empathy between peers so that they understand the actions that they take online are equivalent to the ones they take off of line and they have to be responsible for those actions and there are consequences for them. But I don't think it's fundamentally a different world. It's just a world which is familiar to them and perhaps un less familiar to some of us in the room. Polly. I want to um, pick up on the question of, uh, I suppose, so where do we focus support then? What's the appropriate response? Um, 
I think there's a couple of things. I think one thing we can do is look at the figures more closely. I think we can, um, with, within communities as well. So, for example, you know, we know that rates of emotional problems, anxiety, depression, self-harm are soaring in teenage girls. So we can start to break them down more closely like that. Um, I think perhaps the government's response seems to have been schools. Um, and I kind of wanted to agree with what, what you were saying, really, was that, that there are lots of other things that we can think about. And I think what we know from the research is that cumulative protective factors. So lots of packing in lots of different sources of pr those protective factors. So families, communities, <coughs> as well as schools, really seem to reduce the odds of young people developing mental health problems. So I think it's kind of building up those sources of support really um, could be one response. Um, my take on the, the social media thing is um, I think we too often look at it through the lens of what we ourselves are familiar with. Um, I think that <clears throat> I think this, this is a question that we get asked a lot. I think uh, when we're talking about rising rates of mental health problems in children, I think the two almost sort of uh, default positions seem to be social media, um, but also exam stress. Um, and I'm not convinced that that's the whole picture. I think there are a lot of things going on. I think there's austerity. I think there's, uh, you know, soaring rates of family breakdown as well. I think all of these things need to be taken into consideration. So um, with regard to the impact of social media, I think, I think we don't know yet. I'm probably biased because I can't get my son off Fortnite and FIFA <laughs> and everything else. Ross. <laughs> Just to tie together a, a couple of points, um, and, and those points being um, the social media one and the one about staff staff resistance, and I, and I think what binds the answer to both of those things is is the need to be to be brave. Um, so, for example, we've just uh, from the first of September banned mobile phone use in school. Um, now, of course, that doesn't mean that the students are not going to go home and and go to social take to social media at home. But what it does is encourage conversation because we've had to explain to the students and the parents why we've on why we've had to do that and it's not about us being mean or trying to enforce rules for the sake of them but it's about actually talking to students about why that can be so destructive to a young person uh, but you've got to be brave in the first place to do it but you've also got to be brave in terms of your curriculum decisions as well and when we're talking to staff because we did meet some um, initial resistance it's been absolutely clear about what you want to your school to be about of course, you want it to be about um, good academic outcomes because that's you know a route through for children in the future, of course. But also in, of increasing importance, it's got to be fun. It's got to be a place of, of happiness, and let's not forget that. And let's keep that key to when we're talking about the curriculum or we're talking about why schools exist or why we're putting on training and professional development for staff. Yes, we want uh, academically gifted children who have great enrichment experiences and develop their character but we want them to enjoy their time at school as well. And I think it's really, really important that you keep drawing back to that fundamental part of education. I can't remember the better note on which to finish. Um, we're out of time. Thank you all so much for coming and joining. It's been a fantastic project throughout the 15 months. Thank you again to the Pairs Foundation for supporting it. Thank you to all our partners who helped us deliver it. Thank you in particular to the, to the schools and the staff and the pupils there um, and on your behalf, if we can just finish by thanking Mark and Ross and Simon and Polly. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.